Welcome to The Big Interview with Dan Rather, the podcast that delves deep into the heart of music through the words of the artists themselves. This is your backstage pass to intimate conversations with legends and icons from across the music world, as guided by none other than the legendary Dan Rather. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from rock and roll to country, from pop to alternative. We cover it all right here on The Big Interview with Dan Rather. So sit back, relax, and prepare to immerse yourself in the stories, the struggles, the triumphs, and the tunes that have shaped our musical landscape. Here's your host, Dan Rather. Let's do it. On this edition of The Big Interview. Dan Rather. How are you, man? I'm doing great. Welcome to Love Thompson Station, Tennessee. Multi-platinum recording artist, Billy Ray Cyrus. You can tell the world you never was my girl. You can burn my clothes when I'm gone. His iconic song, Achy Breaky Heart, released in 1992, made him an international sensation. Don't tell my heart. The song not only was his first hit, it also became his signature song and went to number one on the charts in four countries. The video brought line dancing into the mainstream, launching a worldwide craze. And no one can forget the haircut Billy Ray made famous. The mullet has even been parodied by Cyrus himself. It could have been me, standing there with you. Success in the early 90s came quickly, but after two number one albums and hits like Could Have Been Me, his father encouraged him to try acting. So in 2001, Cyrus landed his first role in the cult classic and psychological thriller Mulholland Drive starring Justin Theroux and Naomi Watts. Just forget you ever saw it. It's better that way. Cyrus plays the poo cleaner the who's having an affair doing? with a married woman. You're that ain't no way to treat your wife, buddy. I don't care what she's done. In 2001, Cyrus also got his first leading role in the cable television series Doc. From what I gather, your mentor met several people with multiple personalities, so how'd he take it? The show was on for five seasons and was the first time the Cyrus daughters, Miley and Noah, would share the screen with their father. Then, in 2006, Cyrus, with daughter Miley, embarked on what would become a worldwide sensation. Disney Channel's Hannah Montana Throwing my words back in my face, little missy. So you're one of those do as I say, not as I do daddies. Don't you dare do daddy me, daughter. The show catapulted the Cyrus family into the spotlight. Cyrus's latest television role cast him as Burnin' Burnin', a one-hit wonder kicked out of country music only to show up two decades later as the second best Elvis impersonator there is. It's a thin line between right and wrong. 
But all along the way, Cyrus has continued to make music, releasing 15 studio albums to date, including 2017's Set the Record Straight. Cyrus was raised in Flatwoods, Kentucky, and early on he had his heart set on a big league baseball career. Lucky for us, that didn't work out, but it's still something he loves to talk about. Well, I'm glad you're here. Well, I'm glad to be here. I sat down with him to learn about how an aspiring baseball player became a country outlaw. Well, let me start off by asking you something. You came to love music early. On the other hand, you thought you were going to be a baseball star, and you weren't bad as a high school player. Went to Georgetown College here in Kentucky, not to be confused with Georgetown University, and you were dreaming of being the new Johnny Bench for the Cincinnati That's Reds right. or something. That's right. Well, first of all, did you bat left-handed or right-handed? Right-handed, and I threw the baseball right-handed. Well, there are no left-handed catchers. <laughs> That's right. There's no left-handed. Um, the only thing I, I did left-handed was I wrote. Uh, I'd write left-handed and brush my teeth. And um, I kicked left-footed. There, something was a little mixed up. I think from the day I came into this world, there was, <laughs> it was always something a little I'm different. I'm trying to restrain myself, Peter Ray. This may explain a lot. It does. <laughs> to be you write left-handed, but you bat and throw right-handed. Love it. Kick left-footed. <laughs> I mean, I was always just, there wasn't an exact formula. For me, it was, I, I think I did come out just a little different. And um, as a baseball player, I tried to make up for, I wasn't the greatest baseball player. And I sure didn't have the strength and the home run ability of Johnny Bench. I didn't have his arm. I tried to make up for what I lacked in talent with extra effort, hustle. Luckily, Johnny Bench's partner was Pete Rose. As you know, Charlie Hustle, he was always diving for that extra base. And, and if he needed to lay out in front of the ball, he had laid out. I kind of played ball that way. I, they called me blood. I understand it. You had a vision or voices spoke to you that said, forget baseball and go to music. Yeah. Is that true? It's very true. Now yes. tell me about that. Well, it's, um, I was playing baseball at the time and... 19 years old, um, and something inside, that voice within, whatever that voice is, in this particular instance, it was like, buy a guitar and start a band, and you'll find your purpose in life. And it just kept happening, and finally I traded my catcher's mitt out, put my catcher's mitt up, went and bought a left-handed guitar, and I had always thought that, that I couldn't play because I would always pick up everyone else's guitar and try to play right-handed. And it just never made sense. But my brain wasn't wired that way. And I didn't really realize it until I bought that left-handed guitar. And then everything made sense. And I just played what I heard. I can't sit down and say, I'm going to write a song today. I have to write out of inspiration, usually colliding with desperation and perspiration and all the other rations out there and, and the song and the music comes. When I bought that left-handed guitar, I, I started a band that night and we started playing and within a week I got a gig and I found that the best way to have a great band is to have a job. And it's also the best way to become a better musician. If you have to go play and that's the way you make your living is playing music in front of 
a crowd, you know, five, six nights a week, four sets a night, you have to get better. And um, I started making my living playing music and it took 10 years from that time I bought that guitar. 10 years of failure. And I'm not proud of this, but um, I failed way more times than I ever succeeded. Finally, um, 1989, I was having a pretty rough week. I wrote uh, three of the songs off of the first album, Some Gave All. I wrote three of those songs in a seven-day stretch. And the first one was Where Am I Gonna Live When I Get Home? Uh, Self-explanatory, I forgot to come home. All my <laughs> stuff was sitting in the front yard. I go, where am I gonna live? Where am I gonna live when I get home? That's a song. I wrote that in my truck in the driveway. Then. On Wednesday night, I was feeling bad because I'd wrecked my uh, relationship and it was all messed up. And um, So that night I went back to the bar to play my gig and I wrote a big ballad called uh, She's Not Crying Anymore and wrote that on Wednesday night. And then on uh, Thursday and Friday and Saturday, I didn't write any. And then on Sunday night of that same week, uh, playing the Ragtime Lounge, I met a Vietnam veteran. Uh, and driving home that night on US 52 in southern Ohio, I wrote a song about him called All Gave Some and Some Gave All. That song ended up being the song that got the attention of Mercury Records. And in some ways, though, it took another year and a half to two years. That led to me getting the record deal and became the title track of the first album, Some Gave All. All gave some. You're listening to Dan Rather's Big Interview with Billy Ray Cyrus. Keep your achy, breaky heart right here for more when we come back. Welcome back to The Big Interview with Dan Rather. Today's guest is Billy Ray Cyrus. If you ever think of me, think of all your we recorded some gave all almost as a demo for the album i wanted to use my band and and i made records a little different than the norm of what the nashville system was and um they all loved it and uh, said we need nine more well i had the nine and we were ready to start cutting in June of 91. And somebody, uh, my producer handed me a little cassette, very primitive demo of a song called Don't Tell My Heart. As soon as I heard the demo, I said, I love this. I worked it up, we started playing it in the bar. Ironically found out that it was written by a two-tour Vietnam veteran, Don Von Tress. And when I met Don Von Tress in Nashville, and I said, man, thank you for writing that song, man. I just love it. That thing feels so good. And he said, thank you for writing Some Gave All. And he told me his story. And um, Don Von Trask became my best friend and, and still is to this day. But the name originally was not Aggie Breaky Heart. No, sir. It was called Don't Tell My Heart. And it was called Don't Tell My Heart even after we made the video and, and they were getting ready to release the single. It was called Don't Tell My Heart. Had it on my set list and everything. Don't tell my heart. And right in the last, my, that inner voice inside kept saying, Cyrus, you know that the name of that song is Achy Breaky Heart. 
You know it because all the people that was in the bar, the patrons, different people, they would always come up and say, play that achy breaky song, play that achy breaky song. Nobody ever said, play Don't Tell My Heart. And in the last moment, I told Von Tress, uh, I said, sir, forgive me, but I said, I just want to ask you this. I said, have you ever wondered if the name of that song should be Achy Breaky Heart? And Don Von Tress said, I don't care what you call it, just put it out. And everybody at the record company said, yeah, let's go with Achy Breaky Heart. And um, I'm glad they did. I, I think that well, was part well, of it. Well, aren't you glad they did? Yeah. Don't tell my heart. Did that really stun you and surprise you, or did you have a, an inkling that it might take off? All I knew is that there was something special about that song. And sometimes you make music to find that common denominator with an audience that just feels like a party. It's, it's, it's like um, old time rock and roll or honky tonk woman. Any of those songs, when you play them, no matter what's going on in that club or that venue, you play those songs, usually the dance floor will get packed. Right. I knew there was something about Achy Breaky that as soon as we'd play it, the dance floor would pack. So it felt like something, it felt like something that could move people in a positive direction. It felt like something special, but I wasn't sure. Well, it certainly became something special. <laughs> One of the all time selling great songs. Brought back line dancing, for one thing. It was kind of close to my own heart. But all right, so you have this enormous success. You're making tons of money, more money than you ever thought you could right? <laughs> well, I, I lived in my car, you know, when I recorded that song. I lived in a Chevy Beretta. I don't know if you've spent much time in a Beretta, but there's not a lot of room. No, I spent time in pickup trucks, but a Beretta, <laughs> yeah. not, not uh, so much. Right, okay, good. A little good. too small. Okay, yes, sir. Yes, I'm with you on that. But I'm interested in talking to you, particularly when you have that big a success, that young, sticks in my mind, it may be one of your sayings. When you get that hot, you're almost bound to go down in flames. Yeah. You know, for every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. I didn't write that law, but I know it's true. And you can't have something that creates that much passion and that much goodness for there not to be a flip side of that coin. That's just the way it is. I think a lot about Dolly, Johnny Cash, George, George Jones, uh, Carl Perkins. Um, Waylon. So Waylon, who became my best friend. All of these guys and girls said the same thing. Put the music first. Let the music be your truth. Every one of those great artists always came back to truth, truth in the music. And for me, and as Achy Breaky was hitting, I was writing songs and living songs for the next album. I knew that that moment of who Billy Ray Cyrus was at 92, it was just who I was. That guy, out of that bar, I'd done it for 10 years. There was a realism to that. I knew that it was that realism and that love of music that helped me make it through that decade. And I said, you know what? Cyrus, all your heroes are telling you the same thing. Do what you do because you love it and keep it real and let the music be your truth. 
So I leaned heavy into that band and as an artist just continued to make the music. You know what I'm saying? During that period, after Achy Breaky Heart, did you or did you not fear, listen, no matter what I do, I'm not gonna be known as a one-hit wonder? Yeah, you know, I, I would have, except my second single went to number one, and then my third single went to number one, and then the first single off the second album went to number one, so I maybe have more number one records than any one-hit wonder in history. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I may have the record of that. I didn't like people or the media labeling me because they really didn't know me. Waylon Jennings said it best. He said, if people would just know you for who you are. Waylon said, you know the definition of an outlaw, son? I said, what's that, sir? One who has been outlawed. Welcome to the club. Okay, Waylon Jennings, thank you. I needed to hear that. Say you love strong and true. Let him know how she means to you. Sure, she's a special one who shines in your life like the rising sun. Give love lots of room to grow. Treat her tender and you will know the secret to the treasures of a heaven in the heart of a woman. We'll keep the conversation going with Billy Ray Cyrus when the big interview with Dan Rather continues. Tune up that country twang because you're listening to Dan Rather's interview with Billy Ray Cyrus. You re-released Hey Daddy. Tell me about that. Well, it, Hey Daddy is a song that um, I wrote uh, several years ago. I was in my studio playing some songs and listening to stuff and I was also looking at some footage of some home footage that we had from the kids growing up and it just kind of as usual the music fit life and life fit the music it was art being a part of life and life being a part of that art realizing that it just fit and thinking of my dad and I said you know what it just you wrote that song about this time period. You should just put it all together, and I did, and um, it's had a tremendous response. And what was your relationship with your dad? Uh, my dad was, all due respect, probably the best dad. I mean, maybe in history. He was my friend, my dad, my spiritual leader, my count, legal counsel, all of those of, uh, he was just the guy that I could talk to no matter what was going on. He always told me, he said, he called me Bo. Bo, no matter what's going on in your life, you always know that you can come to talk to me. Even if it's something you may think I'm going to be mad about, I want you to come talk to me. I've always tried to be that to my kids. I've told my kids, I've, if I can be half the man or half the dad that my dad was to me, that's what I try to be. He set the bar for what daddies are supposed to be. And your relationship with your mother? Oh, she's great. My mom, she could not believe I'm sitting here with you. As a matter of fact, this is more like meeting, this may be as close to Elvis Presley coming to this town. <laughs> as a, Oh, I'm serious. I've got my phone is rung off the hook today. People love you. My mom, I bet she said it five times. I was like, are you really going to meet Dan Rattle? Well, I appreciate yes. that. Yes. We're talking lady. about your relationship with your parents. Obviously, 
you had a very good relationship with both, and a particularly strong relationship with your father, which not every boy and man has growing up. Question, there is that theory that no man is his own man until after his father is gone. Do you agree with that? Yes, I do. I do. I, I never dreamed how much I'd miss my dad. And then, you know, it's been almost 10 years now, right at 10 years. And um, I still miss him as much today as I did nine years ago, eight years ago, seven years ago. I, every single day something happens that I go, I wish my dad was here. He didn't know just what to do. He didn't know just what to say or just to see a sunset together. He was, I miss him every day. My dad had the best advice. He always said, son, when you don't know which way to go, stand still. And I've always found that to be valuable, to get into that moment of a crossroads of not knowing which way. Sometimes if you'll stand and just listen, it'll reveal itself. I love that. If you don't know what to do, just stand still. Stand still. Not enough of us do that is my suspicion. It's a good idea. He, he was a very wise man. And it was during the pilot of my first television series, Doc. And I was flying out of Toronto after we filmed it. And on the runway, I was thinking about what my dad had told me because all of a sudden I transitioned from making music to an actor. And I wasn't sure I wanted to do that. I loved music. I, I didn't even consider myself an actor. And so I'm going, am I doing the right thing? And I grabbed a puke sack from the back of the chair in front of me in the plane and started writing, stand still when you're in the dark, listen to your heart. And I wrote the theme song of Doc, which is called Stand Still. Immediately in that moment of sitting on the tarmac in Toronto, and that became the theme of Doc. It's called Stand Still, based on my dad's advice. Pretty interesting about the process. <laughs> wrote it in the back of the, what am I going to call it? The, the bad envelope. Yes, I, I was looking for a more poetic word than puke sack. But um, it's funny, again, how art imitating life. Later on in the Hannah Montana years and during Hannah Montana, in, in real life, as Billy Ray Cyrus, I had written a song about Miley called Ready, Set, Don't Go. Right now I have something I want to give you. Well, in our show, about they converted five. that to my character, Robbie That's Ray. Right to really Hannah Montana, you. and um, they we said, tell us that explain. story about how you wrote your first, and I said, well, she I was on a tarmac, so in Hannah Montana, they recreated what actually happened in my real life on the tarmac riding Stand Still, only it was riding Ready, Set, Don't Go. She's at the starting line the rest of her life, as ready as she's ever been. Got the hunger and the stars in her eyes, the prize is hers to win. She's waiting on my blessings before she hits that open road. Well, baby, get ready, get set, don't go. When Billy Ray Cyrus burst onto the scene, he didn't immediately win over country music legends like 
Waylon Jennings and Travis Tritt, who called the song Achy Breaky Heart the wrong direction for country music. But it was Waylon Jennings' criticism that really stung Cyrus. They were on the outs for years until they met face-to-face on a Nashville radio show. Here's the story that you and Waylon Jennings were in some disc jockey studio and a lady called in talking about how music affects your life and she wound up singing with Waylon Amazing Grace. Yes, sir. We were doing a show in Nashville. It's called uh, Waylon Wednesdays and it was on Carl P. Mayfield's show, the biggest station at that time was WSIX. And Carl P. had said, you know, if Waylon Jennings would just meet you, I think he would find out that you guys have way more in common than a lot of people and might think. And um, they challenged me. They said, would you come from Toronto, come to Nashville and be on the Waylon Wednesday live? I wouldn't, I wouldn't meet Waylon Jennings and shake his hand till we was live on the air. I loved Waylon so much and wanted that chance for Waylon to meet the real me. And I wanted to tell Waylon how much he meant to me. He's one of my greatest influences. And so I came into Waylon Wednesday. Waylon was, he kind of big and, and, and he was all in black and every dark and shadowy in there. It's a bit intimidating, if you will. He's down, he, the main he, he outlaw. He's also a guy who's thick through the shoulders. Yeah, he's yeah. big. And, you know, there was, he's the outlaw. Like, there was, it was a bit like intimidation, if you will. Yeah. And I didn't know how it was going to go. But I really wanted to meet Waylon, so I went in. And the first call was a family that wanted me to sing Amazing Grace, and at the end of the song, they were going to um, disconnect their grandmother. She was on life support. And this is all live on the radio. And when they made the request, Waylon looked at me like, what are you going to do with this, Hoss? And I just happened to have my guitar there. I picked it up. I started playing Amazing Grace. Waylon joined in, Carl P. joined in. We finished the song. We were three to five grown men inside that studio with tears going down our face. And Carl P. said, we'll be back after a commercial break. And Waylon reached over and shook my hand and said, man, you want to come down for a cup of coffee after we get done? And I said, I'd love that. And we finished and we did the show and then I got to Waylon's house, and standing outside his door, he said, wait till you hear my son, Shooter. I said, Shooter, man, I've heard a lot about him. He said, man, he's got his own sound, man. Like, he's got his own sound. You're going to dig this stuff. And I think about Waylon. I, I think about my dad, and I hope that Shooter knows, I'm sure he does, how much his dad was just crazy about him. Like, he, his pride, it was, it was a beautiful thing. But now, Dolly Good Parton, mm. it's, she's the godmother of, of Miley Cyrus. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did that happen? I ask myself that all the time. It's like <laughs> every day. I'll, how did Dolly Parton? But it's kind of, um, I wish it was complex, but it's actually, when Aki came out, um, Dolly put me on her tour as an opening act. It wasn't long after that that some of the headlines in the tabloids uh, had Dolly and myself as 
you know, pictures of us and saying something was going on. And I was so upset about it. I was afraid that she would be upset. I just, I, I just hated that I was, and I hadn't, I really hadn't met her. And so I told my manager, it was a National Enquirer. I said, you think I could go meet Dolly and tell her how sorry I am about this? And, and my manager said, yeah, we're going to make that happen. So before my show, I went to Dolly's dressing room and they escorted me in and Dolly sitting there all beautiful and just like an angel. And I came over and said, Miss um, Dolly, I'm so sorry about this. And I laid that tabloid on her dressing room table there and it was right in front of her. And she looked at it and then she looked at me and said, honey, that shit sells records. And I was, you know, and we laughed and I never thought about it. Like at, from that moment on, we became very good friends. Little did I know at that time, some 15 years later, she would end up becoming Aunt Dolly on Hannah Montana. Dolly Ray Stewart, I am not going to let you lie around here on this couch, drowning in self-pity and drooling all over my dry clean only. You got to move on. And then her and Molly actually just fell in love. Like it was um, kindred spirits. That sounds silly, but... No, they were absolute. You could just feel it from the second they met. It was two peas in a pod. Well, now we're talking about your daughter, Miley, and the whole Hannah Montana, what should we call it, phenomenon. When you first got into the Hannah Montana business, did you have any idea that it was going to take off as it did? It, it kind of was that same feeling that I had about Aki. I didn't know exactly what it was going to be, but I felt like there was a void for what it was. I'm going to have to get on that coaster and go find out. And you're just going to have to let me. Go get him, cowboy. There wasn't a show with a real father and his real-life daughter and somewhat harnessing the synergy of our real family and our DNA. And... Um, I felt like there was something really good about it. I felt like the writing was funny. And, and you know, her character was originally called Kylie. But because I had called her Miley her whole life, every time I'd say her name, I'd say Miley. And one of the directors hollered, cut, cut, cut. And I thought, oh, gosh, they're going to read me out again. It's about the third time I've done it. And they came out and made an announcement. They said, okay, everybody, listen up. Everything in the script that is called Kylie, change it to Miley. When I think back on that, I think that was a quintessential moment in Hannah Montana, the Disney Channel, that whole thing. I think it was important because of the realism. She was Miley. Like, Robbie Ray isn't that far from Billy Ray. Like, there was a lot of... I, I had said sweet niblets and dang flabbit my whole life. And that just became part of the lingo of Robbie Ray's character. But it was just stuff I'd always said, stuff my dad would say. Oh, sweet niblets. Can't you at least warn a guy? Stay with us as Billy Ray Cyrus lets you come backstage with him when the big interview with Dan Rather returns. Let's get back to Billy Ray Cyrus on The Big Interview with Dan Rather. Like 
Well, every parent, in their own mind and heart, you do the best you can. Do the best you can. And do. hope for the best. But there comes a point when the child, as a small eaglet, has to fly. You have to let him fly. She's a woman now. It's not easy being a girl in show business and having to make that passage from being a girl to being a woman in show business. But looking back on it, what mistakes did you make as a parent or did you make any? Oh, I've made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> it happens to be my expertise. That's the one thing I'm really good at is making mistakes. But I will say somewhere throughout my life, I've always had the, the ability to realize that when I make a mistake, I make adjustments. Knowing when the train's gone off the track and maybe when you should make a left instead of a right, knowing the difference, that's the key. Me and my kids, actually, we laugh about it. Uh, my daughter, Noah, says all the time, you know you're never going to get parent of the year. And we'll laugh and, and say, I'm, I'm positive of that. And then we'll do something crazy and laugh. And, and um, we all get knocked down. I just happened to get knocked down enough that I got good at getting back up. You've just described a lot of struggle, and you had a lot of struggle. It's something people don't remember. You just described it. You said struggle, struggle. to claim peace with faith, family, and the power of music. In some ways, that's a bit of our mantra, if you will. Um, without being too crazy, yeah. you'll see um, that says faith. This says believe. And way up here where you can't see, it says music changes everything. The first tattoo I ever got on my body was right here. It said music changes everything. And I do find music to be a great healer. And... Um, I believe in, in the power of music, and, and believing in anything requires a faith in it. As you know, the Bible says faith without works is dead. Trust me, my faith is challenged every single day. Even as we're talking now, don't even look at me and, and think like that I think for a second that I'm holier than thou and that I know something that someone else doesn't know. That's not true. All the things that I went through, all the adjustments I had to make, if for any other reason, if there's some kid out there with a dream that could look at my life and say, if Billy Ray Cyrus can reach his dream, then I can reach mine also. And they go, how did you do it? I go, I failed and failed and failed. You have to accept that sometimes, that that's the way you do it. You, you have to try. And it's just like baseball. Baseball's the best analogy of all for life. You ain't never going to get a hit if you don't get up to the plate and swing. you got to get up and swing. You keep swinging long enough. Yeah, nobody ever made the major leagues with the bat on his shoulder. <laughs> That's true. That is, uh, honestly, that is right. I have so much I want to ask you okay. that I can't possibly get to it all. Still the King is <laughs> a scripted program. Yes, sir. We're now in season two. That means we've done 20 Six episodes, which is 25 more than I ever planned on doing. Here you go, boys. Hope you're hungry. Oh, are you kidding me? Having what they fed us in there tasted like wet, rotten cabbage. I have a lot of fun doing it. I get to do a lot of things that a man my age 
possibly not go to jail for it. I mean, it's just silly fun, but I mean, I get to do these crazy things. Have you ever dressed in an Elvis suit? No. Full on white. I, I, I've done a lot of crazy things, but I can, I can say with absolute certainty that even under my worst circumstances, <laughs> I have never dressed in an Elvis suit. Well, you know what? If you ever want, decide to just try it, you can get away with things when you're dressed as Elvis that you normally couldn't get away with. Like, it's just, it, I couldn't believe it. I, I had never put on an Elvis <laughs> suit either, but once I put it on, I felt different. And it, I acted different, and it was just like, I said, okay, now I still stand in my same spot and let the actors act, but I got on an Elvis suit, and I felt like a better actor. It was I tell you, uh, my brother, I take your advice to heart, but I'm not dressing in the Elvis suit. Okay. I'm not uh, going there. Okay, you got it. You got it. Love my tender, don't be cruel, return to sender, stuck on you, it's now never, suspicious minds, hey Elvis, aren't you lonesome tonight? Fiddler in the tree, how you wonder who you'll be, can't go far but you can always Wish you may and wish you might Don't you worry, hold on tight I promise you there will come a day Butterfly flying away You called it an eaglet and sometimes you have to take that eaglet and you just gotta let it spread its wings and fly. And um, when that moment came with Miley and Hannah Montana had been picked up as a series. We knew that we needed uh, to move to California to go into production. And the family left out of the farm, drove down the driveway, and I stayed behind to take care of the horses and stuff while they got settled in, take care of business and everything. And I walked in my empty house for the first time since I'd been a dad, and everybody was gone. And I looked around, and it was... As always, my guitar was there as something to hold, somewhat, you know, something to hold. I went and picked up my guitar and I started singing, she's got to do what she's got to do and I got to like it or not. She's got dreams too big for this town and she needs to give them a shot wherever they are. Looks like she's all ready to leave, nothing left to pack. Ain't no room for me in that car, even if she asked me to tag along. She's at the starting line of the rest of her life, as ready as she's ever been. Got the hunger and the stars in her eyes, the prize is hers to win. She's waiting on my blessings before she hits that open road. Baby, get ready, get set, don't go. Like. You think you're ready as a dad. You oh, Okay, I'm ready. Then wait a minute. I'm, I'm going to hold the eagle one more time. Maybe we'll fly next week. But it was too late. They were gone. I, as always, I took the emotion out in a song. And um, once again, the Cyruses are living their life in front of the world in that uncomfortable moment, if you will, of life imitating art, imitating life. When you do what we do for a living, you're in the circus. You're under that microscope. And so you have to do it because you love it.
As I see Noah, my youngest daughter, and her new album's out. She's had a couple hit records here and out in the midst well, of she's the She's a tour. star herself. She's blown, <laughs> she's blown up yeah. and just having a big time. And I've never seen her so happy. Like, she absolutely just found her calling. She stepped right into it head on, started writing so many songs. Cause all you ever do is make me. She had all this music in her that was just waiting to come out. She found her calling. When I hear you saying, darling, it kisses like an antidote. A couple of things I want to clear up. I mean, there's so much interesting in your <laughs> background. Geronimo. Geronimo. Now, when you were a kid, you played Geronimo. There he is. You have him tattooed on your arm. What is it about Geronimo that still gets to the essence of what I'll call the aging rock dad? That is Billy Ray Cyrus. That's, <laughs> that's nice. Um, <laughs> oh, gosh. That's, I love that. Um, my mom and dad got divorced when I was uh, five, maybe six years old, five and six. And my Papo Casto had given me his old 22 rifle. And I just remember as even as a little boy, sometimes I'd take that rifle and I would just run as deep into the forest of Flatwoods, Kentucky. My goal was uh, to get lost. I just wanted to get away from everything that was messed up. And I would tell my brother I was Geronimo. And um, it's odd. I, I think I look more like Geronimo now. That, like I've actually, I think I became Geronimo in some ways. You know, you've been so generous with your time and with your stories. What question have I not asked you that I should have asked you? Well, I'll take this moment to say thank you. Um, I talked to Don Von Tress yesterday from Waynesboro, Tennessee. And when I told him you were going to be here, he wanted me to give you a message. And again, he did two tours in Vietnam. He told me to tell you thank you for coming to Vietnam and letting America and the world know what was going on and for being man enough and brave enough to come down there. And he said, run through the jungle. He wanted me to tell you that, that no doubt if you would have seen him, that you guys, that your paths had to cross and he, he wanted you to know how much that meant. And so I'm thanking you well, for Don Von Tress. Listen, I really appreciate you. You, you sure are welcome, sir. And that's it for this edition of The Big Interview. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. another great episode of The Big Interview with Dan Rather. We hope you've enjoyed this journey into the life and music of our special guest as much as we have. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We'd also appreciate it if you would leave us a review and maybe even share the show with a fellow music lover. And to stay up to date with all things related to the show, you can follow us on social media where we share behind the scenes tidbits, previews, and so much more. Until next time, keep the music playing.